You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Is it a biological imperative to want to nap in the afternoon? Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is science writer Jennifer Ackerman. She has written for National Geographic and the New York Times, among many others. Her newest book is called Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, and Dream. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. I'm so glad to be here. And Jennifer, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Of our listeners who haven't read your book, it's a wonderful review of what happens throughout our bodies each day. And you you divide the book into time periods, morning, midday, afternoon, and evening. So I thought this segment we could talk about the afternoon. And uh, I know that I've always said that intelligent cultures honor the mid-afternoon and they take a siesta. And one of the many things I enjoyed about your book is the window that you give us into the world of word derivations. So where does the word siesta come from? Yes, I'm a big fan of etymology. The word siesta derives from the Latin word for sixth hour or the middle of the day. And in many Latin cultures, siestas have been a standard, though that's changing in industrialized countries. The body really does need a nap at uh, this time of day. It experiences a dip in the day sometime between 1 and 4 when the fog of sleepiness kind of drifts in to cloud your thinking and you really function about as well as if you'd had a couple of beers. <laughs> and the reason you, you feel drowsy in the early afternoon is not because of the big lunch you ate. Some foods can exacerbate your sleepiness, but your body experiences a, a natural dip in alertness in the afternoon whether or not you eat lunch. You know, and you can either fight that urge with a trip to Starbucks or a brisk walk, or you can give into it and you know, try to catch a few winks. So sixth hour. So six hours after we're awake, we, we should probably take a nap. And, and your book really focuses on our circadian systems. Can you tell us about how the circadian and sleep systems work in our body? Well, the afternoon trough is a good way to talk about it. Some scientists suspect that it arises from the timing of two opposing processes that work in our daily lives. And the first one is what's known as our homeostatic sleep mechanism, and that keeps track of how long we've been awake. So it's calculating our sleep debt. And as our sleep debt builds, we feel more and more pressure to discharge the debt, and so we get sleepier over the course of the day. Well, at the same time, there's another equally powerful process at work in your body, and this is the circadian alerting mechanism, which is controlled by our master clock in the brain. That's the suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN. And this master clock controls the big circadian rhythms that ex are experienced by the body over the course of the day. These are our sleep-wake cycles and our rhythms of body temperature and heart rate and hormone levels. And our circadian alertness mechanism is lowest very early in the morning, like 3 or 4 a.m. But as the day goes on, the wakefulness signal from it gets stronger and stronger. So all through the day, there's this push-pull process going on, the need for sleep and the drive for wakefulness. And around midday, the accumulating pressure for sleep is so powerful, and the wake signal hasn't achieved adequate strength to offset this sleepiness, so we feel this kind of mountain of drowsiness. 
And again, in, in our culture, we, we tend to fight it with caffeine. <laughs> but another option would be to take a nap. So is it okay to take naps? Absolutely. It's not just okay, it's good. I think taking naps makes you smarter and healthier and safer and certainly more productive during the afternoon. And really, there's been a slew of new studies by a number of scientists, including Sarah Mednick of the Salk Institute. Her work has shown that naps boost your alertness and your mood and your productivity in the later hours of the day. And this is especially true for people like doctors who are forced to work for long periods or night shift workers. And the optimal time and length of a nap varies depending on how much sleep you get at night and and other needs. But for most of us, 15 to to 30 minutes between about 1 and 3 p.m. really does wonders. While researching your book, did you learn about any famous nappers? Oh, yes. Well, there are many tales. Some of them may may be apocryphal, but certainly we have some evidence that Leonardo da Vinci was a, a napper. Winston Churchill was a great napper. Lyndon Johnson was a napper, insisted that you had to take your clothes off and get in your pajamas and sleep. Oh, during the day. <laughs> in the middle of the day. So, And, you know, these people, the, you know, these high-powered people really feel that they were capable of having much longer work days if they took a break in the middle and, and, and actually slept. Mm. Now, tell us about yawning. Yeah, yawning is a, a really marvelous mystery, too. It used to be thought that it was triggered by by low oxygen or high carbon dioxide levels in the blood. But now it's really believed to be more like stretching, a kind of way of increasing your blood pressure and heart rate and flexing your muscles and joints during those transitional periods between waking and sleeping. But it's also believed by some scientists to be a really powerful social signal. And I think that's the root of its contagiousness. And it is definitely contagious, at least among some of us, Just writing about yawning or talking about it makes me feel the urge. The contagion begins very early, around the first year of life, and some of the research suggests that there's a really tight correlation between your susceptibility to contagious yawning and high scores on self-awareness and empathy tests. So the scientists hypothesize that people who yawn contagiously are actually more self-aware and skilled at reading the thoughts of others by observing their faces. And they've done um, brain scan studies that showed that viewing someone yawning actually evokes activity in the part of the brain involved in those social skills. So yawning may really be a reflection of our social nature. So I'm not quite clear on what the social advantage is, if you can read yawning. Well, I think it's about being able to empathize with the way other people are feeling. If you start to yawn, you can be pretty sure you're a pretty empathetic person. If you yawn and they start to yawn, you can make, you know, maybe this is a possibility for a relationship. (laughs) Or maybe you're both just tired. (laughs) Could be. (laughs) Jennifer, one of the things that I think people have a hard time with is the language, and that is what is sleepiness and what is fatigue. Um, Can you help us with that one? Sleepiness and fatigue are are very different things. Fatigue is, is again, one of the great mysteries of science, and it's even a hard concept to define but is often very different from sleepiness. It can be rooted in have emotional roots or you can be physically fatigued. Sleepiness is really about related to this very specific homeostatic sleep mechanism in the brain that regulates and keeps track of how much sleep 
how many hours have passed since we've had sleep and how many hours of good sleep we've had the night before. Now, one of my favorite quotes from your book is about Hippocrates, and he said that muscle fatigue from exercise resulted from a melting away of flesh. Whoa. What did you learn about exercising as you researched your book? As it relates to fatigue? Yes. Well, there's some very interesting research going on by um, a fellow named Timothy Noakes, who's at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And he really feels that fatigue, as it relates to physical exercise, is not a matter of our muscles running out of anything during exercise. It's not a shortage of energy or oxygen. When we exercise, our muscles don't use all of their fuel stores, and they actually rely on only about 30% of their fibers for even really demanding tasks. So he feels that there's no evidence that we use all of our work capacity in our skeletal muscles, even when we exercise to exhaustion. And there's some anecdotal evidence to support this, that that athletes who seem to have something extra left at the end of even very, very long races like ultramarathons, they have that little extra something that gives them more speed. Well, Noakes believes that fatigue actually begins in the brain and that there's a very powerful mental component of exhaustion. And he thinks that the brain has a kind of central governor which sets our level of perceived fatigue based on our expectations of a task. This uh, central governor actually establishes a kind of subconscious pacing strategy that shields the body from exhaustion. And it monitors a blend of cues from the body. And basically, in this way, it protects our body from collapse. But the idea really is that fatigue is rooted in the brain, not in the muscles. In writing the book, there are so many interesting tidbits. Uh, What do you think surprised you the most about your body in doing the research for this book? Oh, there were so many surprises. I think one of the things that really shocked me was related to, uh, to sex. And it was that we have always been thought of as a species that didn't reveal are cycles of fertility. And, you know, other species advertise their fertility with a ruddy rump or some kind of splashy scent or something. And, you know, we seem to conceal when we were ovulating. Well, some recent studies have suggested that, in in fact, men can tell when women are ovulating just by looking at their faces. And these are subtle clues. They have to do with the dilation of your pupils, the fullness of lips and skin tone. But men can actually distinguish photographs of women in their non-ovulatory period as opposed to women who are, are ovulating. Same woman. They find more alluring the woman who is ovulating. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today, Jennifer. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. We've been discussing the new book, Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, and Dream, with its author, Jennifer Ackerman. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.